song number 207. The singing, of course, as always, as we collectively put our voices together and offer our praise to God by way of that, uh, of that medium, we're so thankful for the, the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15. And as we direct that to God, we appreciate that when it's offered, as the Bible indicates, it's a sweet, sweet sound to Him. And tonight we're thankful we've been able to assemble and to gather in this way. You may have already noticed not only the announcement in the bulletin concerning the title of the night's lesson, but also on the wall behind me. We're not going to look very far from the opening page in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. The opening pronouncement in all the Word of God. That verse is not lengthy. That verse is not extensive, at least in the words that it uses. But may I suggest that the concepts that are there and the ideas that are there and the pronouncements that are there are rather extensive and they're rather phenomenal. And tonight we're going to devote our attention almost thoroughly and almost completely to that verse. For that reason, may I say that a few introductory thoughts may well promote us into the direction of our consideration. And maybe I should say it like this. I've tried to write it on that slide. The opening verse in the Bible to folks like you and I as Christians, we take it very seriously. We take the declaration of that verse exactly as it's written, and we stand thoroughly upon it. But it is rather controversial in the wider audience of our world. Those who are scientific and those who are intellectual and those who at least make claims toward that end will quickly dismiss this verse, quite frankly, they will quickly find a way of re to reinterpret it in such a way that it's in harmony with the modern-day scientific discussions. May I also say the first 11 chapters of Genesis, quite frankly, fall into that category most of the time. And yet, in that set of chapters, we appreciate things like the flood of Noah's day. There are many who claim there was never a worldwide flood. But you and I absolutely not only appreciate that there was but that the Bible builds many truths upon its occurrence. And so it goes at the opening verse in Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 1 will be our subject of the evening. Let's close that slide then like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Let's take the particular parts of that verse and let's develop some appreciation one by one. The first three words, in the beginning. That to you and to me makes certain claims that cannot be set aside. You and I have learned on more than one occasion, have we not, that every word of God is tried. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. That means in an original language, which was Hebrew, that's been translated for us to read in the beginning, the emphasis, the thrust in that wording would lead us to some of the conceptions you'll see there. And the most obvious one is this. In the beginning indicates that there was a point of start, a point before which there was not these things. In other words, the universe had a beginning. It is not eternal. The material world in which we are so comfortable is not eternal. It is not that it has always been. 
Now, may I say on that slide that the statement of that is something, at least in some circles scientifically, for at least a little while, that was rather hotly debated. There was a time several decades ago when there were those who would strongly argue that the material world and all the physicality of it had been eternal. Now soon, some scientific observations, including those in thermodynamics, as well as astronomy, have now overwhelmingly asserted that indeed it's not eternal. Well, you'll notice the Bible, in fact, made that declaration a long, long time ago. There was a point of beginning. You and I, from our understanding today, might connect the word time to this. Time, as we know it, had a point of beginning. Time, if you please, has not always been. But to say it that way is to also perhaps beg another set of thoughts. Time, you and I reckon it using a calendar, and we, of course, detail the features of a year by virtue of how long it takes the earth to make one revolution around the sun. Well, that's understood to you and to me. But you'll notice the sun wasn't created until day four. The sun didn't come about until, again, three days after the events here. Well, you'll notice here was a point of beginning, a recognition of the existence of this entity we would call time, but it predated the sun. That isn't all. Look at what else is there. In Mark 10, verse number 6, even Jesus, the Son of God, had thoughts that point us in this direction. Do you remember that the Son of God there said, from the beginning God made them male and female? Even He used this word beginning, identifying the fact that there was a point at which the existence of all these things began. A beginning. Two last things on that slide would then be these. I've asked you to consider. Now this opening verse does not tell us, from our perspective at least, how long ago this point of beginning was. At this point, you and I well know there is a rather wide distinction between the prevailing views and the mind of some. There are those who assert that that particular point of beginning is now to be numbered in the billions of years ago. And there are many who rather strongly make affirmation of that. On the other hand, there are those who are in a rather different category who assert that that point of beginning is only to be numbered in a few thousand years ago. At a bit later in the lesson tonight, we will, certainly will have a brief amount to say about it, but could we at least assert this? Utilizing the Bible as our guide, this point of beginning then leads us to note the following. This opening verse has said that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And one by one on these days that are now listed for our consideration, we know that light is asserted to have been made on day one. And furthermore, on day two was the firmament. And day three was the plant life and the land, dry land as you and I would now appreciate it. Day number four, the various heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day number five, life in the waters and also the, the birds that, that, that dwell in the, in the heavens, if you please. And day number six, the land-dwelling animals. And finally, on that same day, man himself. Now, see that, seen in that fashion, in that light, we rather quickly observe then 
that you'll notice the actual time attached to man's creation on day six would only be five days following the events that we've already read about this evening. That would mean that if we were able to date the age of man, all we'd have to do is to add roughly one week to that, and we would have the age of the earth. Thankfully, the Bible lets us actually do that. It only takes a small amount of consideration in those genealogical accounts, and you can ascertain the chronology within them, numbering it into, again, only a few thousand years ago. But at this point, let's close that slide this way. We've then learned that there was a point of beginning to the universe. Might we also quickly observe the Bible has much to say about the way it will end. It is also not eternal in that direction either. It is not as if it shall last onward and onward. Didn't Peter highlight in 2 Peter 3 verse 10, "...the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The ending point, you see, will be in a rather dramatic devastation, a great fire, if you please, in the beginning. What about the next phrase in that verse? Not only in the beginning, but the next word, word number four, in our English translation is the word God. We immediately find so many marvelous truths connected to the reality of the first occurrence in the Bible of a direct reference to the supreme being of all, God. We're often rather tempted, I suppose, to elevate man pretty highly, for after all, we're talented, we're creative. We can do so many things due to the genius that God has implanted within us. But mankind pales in capability to God. He is infinite, and we are not. He is awesome, and we are not. He is great, and we are not. As far as plumbing the depths of His understanding, there is no possibility of that. As far as giving the fullest understanding to the nature of the great horizon that is Him. The Bible leads us then to note some of these things. Before the events of Genesis 1-1, if God brought these things into existence at this time, then prior to that, they were not in existence. There were no material, physical things. But there was the Spirit we recognize as God. He existed. He predated, of course, these physical things. He brought them into existence. And just like the Hebrew writer would say in Hebrews 3 verse 4, "...the one who built the house is greater than the house." And if God fashioned this universe in all of its majesty and in all of its magnificence, then His greatness must still be far greater yet. Isn't it a wonderful thing then to build some of these thoughts? The word that occurs here, this word God, in the original language is plural. Now I know that that alone speaks volumes of what you and I know the Bible sets before us that there are three persons who have the characteristics of God. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit. And all of them are eternal. Each one of them bears the marks of deity. Each one of them in greatness is thus presented, and even here in the opening chapter of the Bible, in the beginning, God. All in presence were there. 
a bit later in this chapter, you may notice verses 26 and 27, where at least in the English translation, we so abundantly see this plurality when it says, let us make man in our image. And that word us, plural in pronoun character, reminding us again of the three members of the Godhead. Now that word Godhead does appear in the Bible in Colossians 2 verse 9. And you and I see even here the imprints that lead us in the wonder of that truth. Can't we be thankful for God the Son and for God the Spirit just as we're thankful for God the Father? How often does the Bible remind us that in that consideration, we're now ready to develop it like this. In the beginning, God. The next item on that slide is this one. Do you notice the Bible makes no attempt, not here and not anywhere else, to assert a so-called origination for God, to assert some kind of explanation for how He came to be who He is. And that is to stand in rather dramatic contrast to many of the religions that man has come up with, many of the kinds of appreciations that men have developed. I chose one example. You may recall that there was a time on this planet when people gave a lot of emphasis to the gods that were of Grecian character, Greek mythology, and sometimes even still. Our youngsters in school are at least invited to learn some of what was involved in that. But you may remember that Zeus, for example, lifted so highly as the great of those rather Greek gods. But notice, in Greek mythology, he had an origin. There was some means by which he came about. He was the son of Cronus and Ray. Well, if he was their son, then shouldn't they have been greater than him, at least in that regard? There's no discussion, you see, in regard to that when it comes to the Bible. God is God. Notice some of the other statements the Bible makes about him. Would you consider this with me? He was, he is, and he always will be. He is absolutely eternal, everlasting as the word more than once is used in the Bible. Our minds struggle somewhat to fathom this. We are accustomed to things that have a point of origin or things that have a point of ceasement. But with regard to God, didn't the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 90, verse 2? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. There was no point at which you could thus say, before that moment there was no God, for that is not a correct statement. And by the same token, you cannot refer at any point in the future and say, beyond that there will not be God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. That word everlasting is such a rich word, carrying with it the thought of continual being. And doesn't God's name indicate that? You recall that when Moses asked, when I'm asked to give the name of who sent me, what is the name? And God said, I am that I am. Exodus 3, verses 6 and following. I am that I am. That very word, Yahweh, or in the original language, the particular four consonants in Hebrew that were put together carrying the sense of existence and being. That's what God is. Let's develop these additional points. In Proverbs 8.27, in regard to His existence, 
referred to the eternal character of it. That's but one verse of so many others that speak to the one that inhabits eternity. The very phrase employed in Isaiah 57 verse 15. The one who inhabits eternity. Don't you love that phraseology? He inhabits it for He is eternal. He knows about the character of continual existence. For you and for me, that is not in this flesh which we know shall happen. This body is not going to last perpetually. Now our spirit from this point forward, of course, shall. One last thing on that slide about this word God. And it's this. I noted a moment ago that science, of course, also as we noted now in most cases and in most circles, there would be an agreement that there was a beginning and our science friends often make reference to a big bang. This rather remarkable and phenomenal incident in which this gigantic explosion of space and time took place and ultimately over the evolution that followed it brought everything that we now observe into the existence that we now appreciate. Well, now the Bible says there was a beginning, but it was not what scientists call the Big Bang. The features that are outlined in Genesis do not harmonize well at all with the modern-day philosophy of this Big Bang. And so there's a great difference there. There's a rather wide distinction, in fact. And for that reason, may I say that it is a bit of an insult to God when the majesty of the creation is attached to an explosion that has nothing to do with Him. And that's what the Big Bang by and large is. If you read some of the articles of, of the modern-day scientists who discuss it, they theorize and they present equations and they make discussion about this explosion called a Big Bang that ultimately brought everything into existence. And Stephen Hawking and others said, we have no longer a need for God. I beg to differ. Because that Big Bang and all that went with it as we now have it, science cannot make the claim that it has done away with the need for God. There are many particulars, in fact, about all of that that even cry more loudly for God. Revelation 4 verse 11, the closing verse of that chapter, highlights that in terms of the creation, God said, I did it, and I deserve the glory that's connected and attached to it. And so when you or I fail to direct that glory to God, in light of His creation... It is shorting Him that which He deserves. The creation was His work. And this universe has proceeded now from that time forward, and it has proceeded in the way that He intended it. In the sense that that creation had a stability to it. Have you ever thought about that aspect of this universe? Think, for example, about the motion of the planets that revolve around the sun, including Earth. They proceed in a very orderly fashion. The forces involved in that work and in that activity are amazing in that. Any particular changes that occur never make chaotic motion. Never lead to motion, you see, that sends the planets into other kinds of recognized character. May I suggest to you that in modern-day science, that turns out to be a very interesting arena of study. 
And the stability of our solar system and the stability of the atom and the stability of many other things, if humanity were behind it, there would be no stability over this long a period of time. Man can mess things up. He brings about that which causes negative feedback in many other ways. Let's go to the next element in this verse. After the thought of God, what's the verb in the sentence? In the beginning, God created. Here's our first verb in the Bible. That verb, again, carries an interesting appreciation. Why don't we begin it like this? The actual word that's there in the original is what we in English would recognize as B-A-R-A, bara. In Hebrew, again, that means to create. And it will occur a number of times in this opening chapter of the Bible. But you'll notice that it highlights a very interesting and, and rather powerful idea. From time to time, you and I might employ the word create in the sense of taking something that already exists and reform it or reshape it or redirect its use. But that is not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is to literally take what did not exist and bring it into existence fully. God created. Remember, Hebrews 11 verse 3 will go on to say, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are made were not seen of things or not made of things which do appear. That is to say, these things had not previously existed. There were no rocks and water and the other things that would compose those ideas. But God brought them into existence in the majesty of these opening declarations of the Bible. It is with that in mind. Notice again that God did this. He is sufficiently powerful to be able to speak things into existence. His Word does that. After all, time and again on these next few verses, if we were to read the fullness of the chapter, we know well, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament. God's Word was sufficiently powerful that the agency of those words brought into existence that which He had identified, but that which had not existed before. Science today clearly cannot not, not only cannot do that, but cannot even fathom that. The first law of thermodynamics says that matter and energy, these kinds of wonderful entities, it's possible to turn one of them into the other. You can change forms, but you cannot create what was not there. That's a basic consideration in physics at least. And how marvelous is the thought that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed, but only transferred or converted from one form to another. The greatness of God and His creative activity, clearly He wasn't bound by the first law of thermodynamics. But the human family, of course, he is. We aren't God. There are times it would seem we think we are. There are times it seems that we wish to legislate as if we were. But God truly created. Will it not then be something to stand in His presence, literally on that day of judgment, and be honored to be in the presence of one whose voice, whose mere words were sufficiently mighty that creation took place? I would suggest that, at least in the spiritual realm, isn't it wonderful 
to think again how powerful things are even in that realm. When God can speak away the sins of a person's life when they obey His Word, forgiving fully the nature of those sins, that's wonderful. That's powerful. God created. Look at some more elements of this word create. I've asked you about the middle of that slide to give thought to, again, that first law of thermodynamics. But many times in the Word of God, references back to God's creation are made. It's at this point, may I say, that if one wishes to remove the creation of God and attribute it to a big bang or attribute it to something else scientifically only, you can't just take out Genesis 1 to 11. You've got to take out these verses as well. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, Praise God for His creation. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So if you're going to take out Genesis 1 to 11, you'd better take out the book of Psalms. For it too makes reference to God's creation. Furthermore, in Psalm 124, verse 8, a great adoration is given toward God in light not of the other aspects of what He's done, but of His creation. Aside from that, look at the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both of them, are they too to be rejected because they make reference to this literal creation of God? Surely, we would appreciate that one can't only forfeit the opening chapters in Genesis. You'd have to forfeit a large number of the books that follow. Let's close that slide then with this observation. It's not only the Old Testament. It's true, the Old Testament many times makes reference to God's creative activity, but the New Testament does as well. May I ask you to give some attention with me to the Gospel account of Mark. Jesus speaking there made a specific statement concerning the wonderful creation of God. Are we to throw the book of Mark away as well because it makes reference to this? And what about the book of Acts and the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews? In fact, if you were to look throughout the Word of God, the 66 books in the Bible, and you were of a mindset to reject all of those who make a literal consideration of God's creative activity, you would be left with but very, very few books. As far as I can tell, you'd be left with about four books, four out of the 66. And it would be books like Esther, and it would be books like Ezra. To my knowledge, again, there would be but very, very few. Let's close that slide then like this. The verb that is used to describe God's creative activity here borrows a very strong word to bring into existence what previously had not existed the next item is then, in the beginning, God created the heaven. Now notice that word heavens, as you and I read it in the wonder of this opening verse in the Bible. It too is worthy of some interesting reflection. Let me begin like this. It's easy enough to appreciate this sentence structure. God created, we might wonder what did He create? The first thing mentioned is the heaven. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This word heaven that appears here, as you can see, in the original language, it's plural. 
again, referring to more than one entity bearing the description by use of this word. I've asked you to at least think of it from this reference. There seemingly in the Word of God are three particular references to heaven. One of them is, of course, the place where God's throne is. In verses like Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4, God's throne is in heaven. We understand how wonderful the book of Revelation is, pointing us to the reality of and the majesty of this place. But there are other words, other references. The birds are said to fly in the heavens, opening chapter in the book of Genesis. But not only that, the stars are said to be in the heavens. Again, same chapter, as well as many other references, especially in the prophets. So if the stars are in this heavens and the birds are in the heavens, that led me to make this observation that this word can be used to refer to the local atmosphere of earth, but it can also be used to refer to the far distant stretches of outer space. Now, neither, of course, is the explicit place of God's throne. And so we have three heavens. Is any wonder that Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, as he made reference to himself, I knew a man caught up to the third heaven. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. The reference then to the heavens takes us to this observation. God reigns on that wonderful throne in heaven. Verse 89 of Psalm 119 points out the, the truth that might be stated in that. But may I say that when God brought into existence then, the heaven, here in verse number 1, notice it's not that that heaven as the outer space was filled with stars at this point. That wouldn't occur till day 4. But the existence, the absolute character of what scientists today would call space-time, apparently was brought into existence in the marvelous wonder of Genesis 1 verse 1. That space-time leads me to note the following. Genesis 1.14, that space will be filled with stars again in just a few days as we come to day 4. But not only that, that last statement. Could you and I not at this point stand in true amazement at the vastness of this heaven. When you and I are able to peer into that outer space region, we are so impressed by how far away those stars are, the luminosity and the brightness of them. And if you have the opportunity to look at pictures by the Hubble Space Telescope and other things and see what fills this universe, the pictures are astounding. They are in many ways so beautiful, so remarkable, and they point out to us the great creative activity of God. Surely to say that He created the heaven closes that particular slide by noting a number of other places in the Bible wherein that particular creative activity related to the heaven is mentioned. I've listed just a few of them. The book of Amos, the book of Second Kings... And one more time, you begin to see there are many places in the Bible where almost incidentally it's merely stated as truth that that is what happened. The last part of this verse, the last three words of it, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth. This planet on which you and I walk, 
How special indeed it is. How remarkable in so many ways. May I point out that that remarkable character is not an accident. It is not an evolutionary happenstance. It came about by the particular and specific creative activity of the God whom we've referenced tonight. And so, look at just a few of these truths. So, with that creation of the heavens, as we've just now noted, God had especially in mind this place, earth. You and I have always lived here. We're familiar with it in so many ways. We see the presentation of what's here. And would you be impressed with the fact that those scientists have peered their telescopes throughout the heavens now for a long, long time. And there have been many particular celestial objects that have been observed and many particulars about their state of being. The existence of it, what chemical elements are there, is water there, and no place has even come close to having the characteristics of earth. No place. Look at some of these thoughts. It would be fair to say that, again, that isn't accidental. For you see, Isaiah will later tell us in Isaiah 45, verse 18, that God created the earth to be inhabited. He created it to be inhabited. Are you aware of the fact that some of the closest planets to us, like Venus, sometimes that planet's recognized as a very near twin to earth. It has close to the same size, close to the same mass, but yet its atmosphere is what would make it uninhabitable for us. We have an atmosphere of oxygen, you see, or at least that's a significant constituent in it. And yet on Venus, the particulars are not nearly the same. Not only that, the atmosphere is such that its thickness makes the pressure at the surface so great that it would crush many things that would otherwise be there. Oh, how inhospitable that kind of a place would be. And yet Earth, we have water, existent in solid and liquid and gas. All three forms that's readily existent upon this planet. And we have a temperature range that is not only consistent with that, but that's consistent for habitation in so many ways. God fashioned the Earth to be inhabited. And not only that, would you appreciate that initially... In verse number 2, it says, The earth was without form and void. It didn't have this present state at the instant God created it. He has brought it into its consideration. He brought it into the place that you and I now enjoy it to be inhabited. But our God did it. And He fashioned it in accordance to His will that way. Let's close that slide then like this. The whole idea of the creation, as we've at least seen it in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Well, you and I know His creative activity has so majestically done what we've discussed this evening. But doesn't it prompt in your thinking and mine? Second Peter 3.13 says, We look for new heavens and a new earth. And one can't help but think back to a consideration like this. We look for a new environment 
a new place of dwelling, fashioned as perfectly and fashioned as ready as God initially fashioned this one. That phrase then in 2 Peter 3 is not a reference to some remade earth. In fact, as the book of Isaiah will detail it in chapters 65 and 66, that new heavens and a new earth is the place fashioned for dwelling by the work of God. And just as those who were making ready for the Babylonian captivity, they were going to look for a new place of dwelling as well. You and I know today we still look for the one spoken of there. We're going to leave this earth someday. You and I aren't going to stay here permanently. And those religious groups who are under the illusion that earth is somehow going to be remade into a utopian perfection, they have missed the point. This earth is not going to be remade that way. It will be destroyed, as we noted earlier. And you and I look for new heavens and a new earth. Not a remade physical place like this one. We shall have spirit, a ready-made spirit body, if you please, and it will be fashioned for eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 and following. As we close this lesson this evening, one final slide of conclusion. We have devoted our attention fully to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the springboard of that verse is what launches us into the remainder of the Bible, all 31,101 verses that follow it. They are built upon and based upon the truth that's been presented in this one. And aren't we thankful for the loveliness of this verse and the power of it? For in this one brief, rather small presentation, we have the beginning of time. We have the basic force of God, the work of His creation, the existence of the heavens, and the specially prepared earth. All of that in Genesis 1 verse 1. This evening, have you and I submitted our life to the great God who did all of this? If we have, then we know that He is able to safely keep what we've committed to Him. 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. But by the same token, if you haven't submitted to Him, why do you wait? You and I are not able to direct ourselves in the pathways of that which will be pleasing to Him. For isn't it true in Jeremiah 10 verse 23? O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. If you and I are having trouble directing our steps, it's because we aren't following the right being. We're trying to follow ourselves, or we're trying to follow others who also are not God. But if we will follow the steps of God, following the precious footsteps of Jesus, we shall be led in the right way, and our life will know peacefulness and harmony and tranquility and the confidence in the one far greater than we. This evening, if we could be of assistance in any way to anyone here in these regards, responding to the gospel's call of invitation, won't you come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?